Please open your Bibles with me to the book of the Psalms. This morning, I want us to consider a verse there in Psalm 11. Psalm 11, verse 3. Notice the question the psalmist asks there. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, this word if is used here because the psalmist is asking a hypothetical question. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's the same hypothetical sense that Paul uses the word if in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he writes there in verse 14, If Christ be not risen, if Christ be not risen, then our preaching, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. You see how God's word sets forth these hypothetical questions with the word if? Beloved, if Christ be not risen, if our foundations of his righteousness and his redemption, if the salvation he accomplished by his body through his blood were not accepted, well, then the disastrous result of that would be that your faith and mine would be in vain. Paul went on to say, if that's true, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if that's true, if Christ be not raised, then not only is your faith vain, further to that, if that were true, well, then that would mean ye are yet in your sins. And then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Now, if Christ be not risen, and thank God he is risen, but if he wasn't raised, well, just think of the horrible implication and the horrible things that would result from that. Beloved, I'm so glad, as God's own word declares it and reveals it to my heart, the heart he's opened, my Lord is risen indeed. Now, when the Word of God asks hypothetical questions, it does so to emphasize the reality of the gospel of our salvation. For example, in Hebrews chapter 6, there in verse 4, the apostle writes, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they, and there's that hypothetical word again, if, if they shall fall away, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Now the apostle is describing a hypothetical scenario somebody who's tasted of the heavenly gift, if they've been a partaker of the Holy Ghost and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they've experienced this and if they fall away, well, then that would mean there would be no hope for them. I mean, to renew them again to repentance would be impossible. So you see then just how impossible it is for the believer to perish. And so when David says, if the foundations be destroyed, in our text there in Psalm 11, verse 3, 
Notice he's not saying that the foundations of God could be destroyed, and thank God for that, but rather if they could be destroyed, what would the righteous do? Now, as the 11th Psalm was read to us, we saw there how David categorizes everybody in this wicked world into two different groups, just two groups, the righteous and the wicked. What's the significance of that? Well, my friend, right now, even while I yet speak, you and I are in one of those two groups of people that God calls the righteous and the wicked. Now, here's an interesting observation worth noting. All the truly righteous, without exception, believe themselves to be wicked. And all of the wicked, without exception, believe themselves to be righteous. You see, the wicked think there's something good in them. Even though they may be a, a drug dealer or a purveyor of pornography, but incredibly, they still think that there's still something in them that could be turned around and make themselves better. And so without exception, all the righteous believe themselves to be wicked. And without exception, all the wicked believe themselves to be righteous. Now, when David asks if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What exactly is he referring to when he speaks of the foundations? I mean, to what is he referring to? I mean, if you would ask a church member or a typical preacher in our day, he would probably speak of the foundations of their doctrinal distinctives of their particular denomination, be he Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, or Presbyterian. Now, biblically speaking, did you know there's no such thing as denominations? Nope. No such thing. Rather, the Word of God sets forth every single one of us as either being Christians or non-Christians, believers or unbelievers, as a person having God or having not God. We read the John the Evangelist making it ever so plain in his first epistle. He writes there, In 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, he writes, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. In his second epistle, he writes, and this is uh, 2 John verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. And so this thing of belonging to a denomination, you know, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a Catholic, I'm a Methodist, well, that's purely man-made. And indeed, there's no truth in that kind of thinking because denominations are unscriptural. So David most certainly is not speaking here about foundations as referring to denominational distinctives. And so that begs the question again, what then is David referring to when he speaks of the foundations? Well, I think a good thing one could possibly say 
would be that David is saying, and now ultimately I don't think he's referring to this, but one could say he's speaking here of the five solas of the Reformation. You know, scriptures alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to God's glory alone. Now, all of those things are good, but at the end of the day, it's still something cleverly composed by men. I suppose I could talk about the truths that adorn the doctrine of Christ, and those would be good. They're certainly scriptural. You may also know them as tulip. You know, total depravity. Men are totally depraved. Unconditional election. God unconditionally elected a people before time again. Before time began. Limited atonement. Christ's intention of salvation was limited to his elect people, as he never intended to save everybody. Irresistible grace. God's grace is irresistible and invincible and the perseverance of the saints. Or, as I like to emphasize it, the preservation of the saints. As we read there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, how that we're kept by the power of God. You see, everybody that God elected, everybody that Christ died for, and God the Holy Spirit gives life to, shall persevere to glory. And so that would be a good statement of what is believed. But still, there's more. that's more of a heady, logical thing. And so what I'm interested in is what does the Bible say with respect to the foundations? Indeed, we must come to the Scriptures with this ardent desire. Father in heaven, we would see Jesus. And so if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So what would be, indeed, what would the Bible call the foundations? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And beginning there in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God, and this is the Apostle Paul writing here, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another man buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus the Lord. You see, beloved, Christ is the foundation. You see, our foundations are the gospel of his righteousness and his redemption, his body and his blood. I love when our Lord said to Peter, upon this rock, upon this confession that speaks of me, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, Jesus Christ is the foundation for he is the foundation of knowledge of the knowledge of God. And my friend, you and I will never know God apart from Jesus Christ. For all that we will ever see of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And for you and I to see him as he really is, God must command the light to shine out of darkness, to shine in our hearts. And it has shined, beloved, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ, the glory of his blessed person 
and his finished saving work. I like the way Young's literal translation renders Acts verse 28. Acts 20 verse 28. It says there, Feed the assembly of God that he acquired through his own blood. Feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. You see, my friend, Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, and he purchased his church with his own precious blood. Jesus Christ, the Savior prophet, Jesus Christ, the Savior priest, Jesus Christ, the Savior king, our only foundation. In Isaiah chapter 9, there in verse 6, we read God's word declaring, Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born. You see, he was born into that body that was prepared for him in the womb of the virgin as the son of man. The prophet continues, Unto us a son is given. As the eternal son of God, he is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Pastor, are you saying that Christ is the mighty God and the everlasting Father? Are you saying that? No, I'm not saying that. God's own word declares that. And by his grace, I believe, receive, and am made to know that very thing. As we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Truly in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In John chapter 14, in verse 9, Remember when Philip asked the question, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And our Lord replied, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. My friend, all that you and I will ever see of the true and living God is in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the evangelist John writes, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared Him. Now this needs to be repeated. The true and living God, your Creator and mine, is Christ Jesus the Lord. My friend, Jesus Christ is God. Indeed, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You see, a man or woman that does not know Jesus Christ is dead in sins with no knowledge of the living God. My friend, the foundation of everything is Jesus Christ. For you see, He is our Heavenly Father's motive. He is our Heavenly Father's reason for doing everything. Indeed, He is why our Father does everything that He does. He is the Father's purpose that in all things His beloved, well-pleasing Son, Christ Jesus the Lord, might have the preeminence. The Apostle Paul writes, speaking of our Lord, there in Colossians chapter 1, beginning there in verse 18, he writes there, Colossians 1 verse 18, And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of 
the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, not you, not me, but rather Christ Jesus the Lord, might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. You see, my friend, our Heavenly Father has got an agenda, and that's the glory and exaltation of his beloved, well-pleasing Son. Indeed, everything he does, he does for the glory and honor of his beloved, well-pleasing Son. For you see, he's the foundation of creation. God's own word declares, For by him, for by the Son of God, were all things created, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. You see, beloved, our Lord is the foundation of creation. He created the universe. He brought matter into existence that was not there before. I mean, take this in if you can. There was a time when all there was was God and he was the only one who spoke the universe into existence. He made the worlds, and he's the foundation of everything that happens in time. You see, everything that happens in time is his will being done. My friend, he controls everything. He controls the thoughts that are going on through your mind. And right now, it could be you're under his judgment, or it could be he's going to have mercy on you. I don't know. But my friend, he's completely in control of all the free action of being. And that's glorious. And that's how we can say, beloved, we know. You see, it's not just that we believe this. Beloved, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And that's because he controls everything and everybody. And by him, all things consist. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 how that all things are upheld by the word of his power. You see, everything that takes place in time and eternity is neither more nor less than his will being done. And beloved, he is the foundation of salvation. When old Simeon held that child up just eight days old, brought to the temple to be circumcised, he couldn't have weighed more than six or seven pounds. And he said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Beloved, Christ is salvation and everything God has for the sinner is for Christ's sake. It's given in Christ. It's given for his glory and it's mediated through him. You see, my friend, our Heavenly Father will not speak to nor be spoken to apart from the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is salvation. And all doctrine of salvation, all the glorious truths that adorn the doctrine of salvation are only understood in Christ. For instance, election, God's choice of His people before time began. My friend, you can't preach if you're not preaching election. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says there, According 
as our Heavenly Father hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You see, you can't have election without Christ. I was chosen in Him. My Heavenly Father didn't choose me independently of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, no. Rather, I was chosen in Him. What about justification? Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, God justifies people by punishing their sins in Christ and by giving them the righteousness that Christ worked out for them so that we may stand before God without guilt and His spotless, sinless record. What is justification without the personal work of Christ? Absolutely nothing. What about redemption? That sin payment. My friend, you can't redeem yourself and you can't make up for your own sins. But we read in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Christ, we read, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Well, what about sanctification? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, Christ Jesus is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Beloved, Christ has made unto us our wisdom, He's our righteousness, He's our sanctification, and He's our redemption. What about faith? Well, He's the object of faith. You see, true saving faith looks only to Him. For he's the author and finisher of our faith. My friend, if you have faith, he made it and he gave it to you. He is the one who sustains who sustains it and he's the object of faith. He's everything in faith, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Aren't you thankful, beloved, that it says he's the author and finisher? Not merely just the author, beloved, he's the finisher of our faith. What about repentance? We read in Acts chapter 5 in verse 31, God's word declaring there how that repentance is God-given. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, we read there in God's only holy book, the Bible, in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is repenting of anything contrary to him, anything that's contrary to our holy God. Any low thought of him is to be repented of and any high thought of yourself is to be repented of. And beloved, we repent of everything that's contrary to him being our foundation. 
What about the peace I have? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, it says there in verse 14, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Beloved, the reason I feel and experience genuine peace is because everything God requires of me, the foundations that I stand upon before his throne of grace, well, he looks to his son for, and so he is our peace, having made peace by the blood of his cross. And not only do I have peace, I also have a good hope that when I stand before God in judgment, God's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's because Christ Jesus the Lord, his beloved son, is my righteous record. You see, he's our hope. And if he did well, I did well because I was in him. And if, he, and if he's a good and faithful servant, I'm a good and faithful servant because I'm found in him, in his righteous record, not in my soiled, ruined record. You see, beloved, my only standing before God is in Jesus Christ, for he himself is salvation. I love that scripture we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Beloved, ye are complete in him. We have a full and complete pardon of all of our sins through his precious blood. And dressed in his righteousness, we have a perfect, righteous record before God. I don't want to be found in my record. How about you? <laughs> I want to be found in the perfect, spotless record of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, beloved, you don't lack anything. You have all God requires. You are complete in him. Indeed, he is salvation. And heaven will be, will be being in his presence, being conformed to his image, and beholding his glory. Beloved, he is the foundation of forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says there, Beloved, be kind, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now, God didn't forgive you because you asked him to. God didn't forgive you because you deserve it. Rather, if God forgave you, if you're forgiven, if I'm forgiven, God forgave us for one reason and one reason only, for Christ's sake, because of who he is and what he did. As the old hymn writer said, my faith has found a resting place, <laughs> not in device nor creed. I trust the ever living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Jesus Christ himself is the one foundation. Now I'll read to you another scripture found in 2 Timothy. Second Timothy. Now Paul speaks here of the foundation of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. 
If the foundations be destroyed, who can, what can the righteous do? Second Timothy chapter two, verse 14, the apostle writes, indeed, God's word declares of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred. These men have made a mess of people's faith, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrown the faith of some. These men taught erroneous heretical teachings. Nevertheless, verse, 14, verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Now remember, we're asking what does the Bible say of the foundations? Well, it says the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. There's the foundation of God, beloved. Even though the faith of many is overthrown, even though Hymenaeus and Philetus have made a mess, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. My friend, there's a group of people in this world that our Lord calls my sheep. The Lord says, they hear my voice and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Could it be you're one of them? And so having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them to the end. And he said, concerning those the father gave him to save, he said, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. This is the father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise up again in the last day. Now there is a great group of people that God calls his in this fallen world. And it says, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And to many in this world, he'll say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Now he knew exactly who they were, and he knew the and he knew everything they'd done, but didn't know them. And that word speaks of uh, intimacy. You know what our Lord is saying? This multitude, this many, who boasted in what they did rather than resting in what the Lord finished. He's saying, "I never loved you. I never knew you to be one of mine. I've never been in an intimate relationship with you." But concerning all of his people, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Now, here's the foundation of my salvation. Here's what I'm relying on. And it's not my knowledge of him. No, no, beloved. Rather, it's his knowledge of me. Whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate to be conformed in the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. 
whom he justified, them he also glorified. And so what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You see, the very foundation of our salvation is his knowledge of me. And the scripture says that the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. In Hebrews chapter 6, we read there in Hebrews chapter 6. The apostle writing there, indeed God's word declaring, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation. Now, if you're always having to lay again the foundation, the superstructure is never going to go up. I mean, there's a real problem if the foundation has to be laid again and again. And so the writer of the Hebrews is saying, in effect, the foundation is something that we should not have to lay down again. The foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands of, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And those are the six foundations of the gospel. First, repentance from dead works. You repent of all your works. Before you knew the gospel, your efforts to try to save yourself were nothing more than dead works. And though one time you considered them good works, works that could recommend you to God, and now you see they're nothing but filthy, ruined rags and now your only hope is Christ alone and you repent of all your dead works now when I hear someone say well I got saved and after that I learned grace I learned how God saves well there's the problem you learn the doctrine and you never really bow the knee to Christ you see when God saves someone they see that all their religious works were dead and filthy before God gave them life to see who Christ is. And what he did is everything in salvation. And then the next thing he mentions is faith toward God. This is the second foundation. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. To him that worketh, at, worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now that's faith toward God. Here's my faith. I believe on him who justifies the ungodly through the person and work of Christ. I believe myself to be ungodly. I believe that what Christ did is all that's needed to make me absolutely just before God, and I'm relying on him. Now the third thing he mentions is the doctrine of baptisms. Now baptism is by Immersion. You go under the water and you come up out of the water. And it's for believers. It's not for infants. It's not for unbelievers. Rather, it's for believers. You see, you don't get baptized to be saved. No, no. Rather, you get baptized because you already are. You see, there's only one kind of baptism, and that's believer's baptism. But what is the doctrine of it? What does it teach us? You see, it is simply a meaningless man-made religious ritual if you don't know its meaning. You see, baptism 
is when Christ lived, I lived because I was in him. That's my only hope. You see, when Christ died, I died. When he was crucified, I was crucified with Christ because I was with him in him. When he had died, I died. When he paid for my sins, my sins were paid for. And when he was raised from the dead, I was raised from the dead. That's the doctrine of baptisms. It's the doctrine of union with the Lord Jesus Christ, one with him, both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, as we read in Hebrews 2.11. And the fourth thing he mentions is the laying on of hands. What kind of doctrine is that? Well, we're not religious people who like to lay hands on one another. I don't like to, to do that, and I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't know why they want to do that, like some kind of transfer takes place when they lay hands on, on the person. You know, the Holy Spirit comes to you, and I bet they don't believe it themselves. But this is what the writer is talking about. If you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16. And there in verse 20, God's word declares there. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Verse 21, Leviticus 16. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all the iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now here is the laying on of hands. The priest lays his hand on the head of the sacrifice. Symbolically, the sins of the people. He's representing the sins of Israel being transferred to that live scapegoat. And that scapegoat is led away bearing all the sins and iniquities and transgressions of the people of Israel. And my friend, that's exactly what was taking place on the cross. My sins were transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he bore them away. And that's how I can stand before God without guilt. And then there's the doctrine of resurrection. Christ was raised from the dead for our justification. We're spiritually resurrected when we're regenerated, brought from death to life. And then at the final resurrection, that resurrected reality will be revealed when we'll be glorified in God's sight, absolutely perfect. That's the doctrine of the resurrection at that eternal judgment. And beloved, the judgment has already taken place. It's taking place eternally in Christ. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And everything God does is eternal. And all judgment has been accomplished. And so now in judgment day, before that great white throne, the sentences will be handed out. But beloved, our judgment has already taken place by what Christ did on Calvary's tree. 
one uh, final verse there in Isaiah chapter 28. And there in verse 16. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Now this stone that God has laid is described here as tried, proven in all works, precious to God and precious to those who believe. Absolutely sure. And so what is it to lay on this foundation? Whoso believeth on him shall not make haste. And Paul quoted this in Romans 10, verse 11. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now, if I believe on this stone as all my righteousness before God, this is what it is to lay down on the foundation. I trust who he is to hold me up. I'm not going to be ashamed of that hope. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the gospel I preach. Now, I'm not proud of myself, but I'm proud of the gospel I preach, for it's the power of God unto salvation, and I won't be put to shame. You see, my friend, as a believer, if you could see my life before God brought up on the big screen, what's it going to look like? Nothing but perfection, nothing but holiness, nothing but righteousness. I won't be put to shame because Christ is my righteous record before God. And I have nothing to be ashamed of in Christ. Oh, what a foundation is Christ. He is my foundation. God's knowledge of me and the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ worked out that causes me to repent of my dead works, to have faith toward God and a trusting union with him. Trusting how that my sins were put away in this divine transfer, and I look to him only as my foundation. My friend, I pray that God will be pleased to make himself known to you, that he will reveal to you not only his blood, but his body. It's only half a gospel, beloved, if you're just looking to the blood. Not only do we have a full and complete pardon of all our sins with his precious blood, but in that body, the body of a real man, he lived out a life that actually pleased our Heavenly Father. That is where we find our acceptance. That is where we find our rest. That is where we find our joy, our perfect peace. It's not found in this flesh. Don't look to this flesh, beloved. Look away from this flesh and look to the flesh of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to his flesh. In closing... I'll just read the last part there of Psalm 11. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright the implication there is 
in Christ. Amen.